Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we have so much to be thankful for. We'll actually take time to count some of your blessings, but the greatest thing of all is that we have you. You have given yourself to us on the cross, and you took your life back with the authority of God himself so that you may be with us every day as you promised until the end of the age. So help us to look to you, learn from you, be like you, and tell others how great you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Morning. How is everybody feeling? I almost fell off this stage at 9 o'clock. It's been quite a morning already. We've baptized three people. Uh, we will baptize several more, Lord willing, over the next few weeks. So if you have been one who has been wondering when and putting it off, uh, I'd love to talk to you about that. Sometimes people postpone their baptism and, and they have good reasons for it. But baptism is going public. It's a little bit like my wedding ring. It doesn't create a relationship. Only marriage can do that, but the wedding ring announces it. It proclaims it. If anybody cares to look at my left hand, I wear this symbol every day to tell anyone who cares at a glance to know if I'm married, yes, I am, and happily so. Baptism is going public. It's holding the press conference. You have to trust Jesus as Savior first. You have to turn from your sins first and trust Him. And then the New Testament example is across the New Testament, you can look for yourself. People were saved and immediately baptized. They trusted the Lord and then they were baptized. They went public. They gave that testimony. In our day, for all kinds of reasons, people put it off sometimes for many, many years. But that is the Lord's will. If you're already a Christian, that is the Lord's will for you, His first step of obedience and public identification with Him and His local church. Okay? So, if that is of interest to you, if you've been thinking about that, if you have questions about that, if you're not sure of your faith in Christ, if you're not quite certain that Jesus is your Savior, please take a moment, fill that connection card out, leave it for us in the offering basket at the end of the service, and I'll be glad to be in touch with you myself. Now, anybody on social media? A little bit? A little bit of <laughs> Let's be honest, probably, but hopefully not. Probably, probably so. I've had people text me while I'm preaching. When they're in front of me. Well, listen, presumably listening, you're doing a terrible job. Well, wrap it up, we get it, move on, all kinds of things. If you're on social media, it's not surprising. The recent, decent, reliable research says that Americans spend about 12 hours a day in media of some kind. No wonder you're tired. There's only 24 hours in a day. Hopefully, you're going to sleep a few of those. 12 hours immersed in media of some kind. And someone else did a credible study. Like every study, it's a little bit debated, but you might expose yourself daily as an American to 4,000 different messages of some kind of branding or commercials or invitations or solicitations or appeals or something, about 4,000 images or symbols 
or verbal communications that you're exposed to in an average day that in some way want your attention and want you to do something about what they're presenting to you, even if it's to, you know, whiten your smile so that people like you and the girl that you've always wanted to turn and look at you across the classroom finally will because now you're brushing with crest, and crest was the missing element in your life to make all that goodness happen. Well, social media is just consumed the world, it's actually actively changing the world. And the interesting thing about it is social scientists have dug into people's behavior and what social media is doing to them for long enough now that we now know what effect it's having on us. And there are more and more studies that say if you participate in social media and the more you participate in social media, the more depressed you tend to feel. Does that make sense to anybody? Has that been your experience? Okay, well, stop. No, I'm just kidding. It's not, may not be quite that simple. But have you ever wondered why that is? Why scrolling and scrolling and scrolling through Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook or whatever, whatever you're doing? Some curmudgeon said, I'm not on Snapface. Okay, well, yeah, clearly. Um, <laughs> clearly you're not. No such thing, sir, but good for you. But have you ever wondered why you feel that way? I think it's comparison. See, the issue with social media is everybody, or almost everybody, except for that one friend of yours, practically everybody presents their highlight reel on social media. Here we are in this amazing place. Subtext, you're not here. You're in Huntington Beach. This place is awesome. And you're in Huntington Beach and feeling pretty miserable because you're not with them in Iceland or whatever cool place they happen to be in. It's the comparison game. People are obsessed with taking selfies. And by the way, just as an objective observer watching you take a selfie, I've done it too, you look ridiculous while you're taking a selfie. <laughs> And no, you don't look that good. Those are filters, okay? <laughs> and that's part of the deal. In the right light with the light filter, I still got it. <laughs> but I need that light and I need that filter and I need that angle. And then you experience me in real life and like, what happened? I, I was expecting something, <laughs> something very different based on what I saw on social media. But the trouble with social media is it, is it makes a ritual, it makes a 24-hour available thing that is already difficult and fallen and broken inside the human heart, which is comparison. And comparison, someone said many years ago, is the thief of joy. Comparison is a cancer on contentment. Next week, we'll be back to the Gospel of Luke. Today, I want to engage the difficult question of contentment. Two weeks ago, someone asked me a very good question, or they asked me some time ago, I engaged it two weeks ago. How can I pursue excellence and be content at the same time? And we talked about that. Today, I'd like specifically to look at elusive contentment, and we're going to find the lesson in the best and most unlikely place of all, in a prison cell, by reading a letter from the Apostle Paul. Look with me, please, in Philippians chapter 4. 
Philippians chapter 4, if you're not familiar, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul some 26 years after he became a believer in Jesus. Paul was what today we would call an Orthodox Jew. In fact, he would be, I think, rightly called in modern language an ultra-Orthodox ultra-observant Jew. He was in a group called the Pharisees. Bad word today, good, respectable word in Paul's day. They were the strictest observers of God's law. In their religious zeal, they had piled a lot of their own traditions on top of the law, and they had the respect of everyone in their culture. And among the Pharisees, these super strict students, memorizers, observers of God's law, at least according to their own understanding, because their fatal flaw was believing that through obedience to the law and particularly through obedience to their own traditions, they could achieve a righteousness of their own and God would have to accept them because they had been holy enough. And that is the invitation of every religion to meet the standard. And what religion tends to do is lower the standard so that you can reach it or drive people into a religious frenzy trying to meet a standard of the holiness of God, which Jesus alone can meet. You haven't met God's holiness and neither have I a single day in your life. He's just utterly separate. He's in a whole other category from us. But that was Paul. Self-assured, confident, persecuting Christians because by Paul's understanding, Christians were imposters. They believed in a nation and faith-destroying lie that Jesus, who Paul thought was a charlatan, had not only been killed by the Romans, but had actually come back from the dead. Paul thought that was absolute categorical nonsense until he met Jesus. Jesus quite literally knocked Paul off his high horse about the year 34 A.D. Sometime after that, after Paul's conversion, Paul was commissioned, also sent by Jesus, to preach the gospel to people he would have found repugnant in his previous life. And through all of that preaching, some 26 years after his conversion, he finds himself rotting in a prison cell, In the ancient world, as it is the case in many third world nations even today, if you were going to do well in prison, you would depend upon the kindness of strangers on the outside. And where Paul is, nobody cares about him. At best, he's a religious zealot. And Paul is quite literally going hungry in this prison cell until one of the churches that he had taken the gospel to send a man named Epaphroditus with a financial offering, and Paul, who is quite literally starving, gets a new lease on life. He has money and food and sustenance again, and in gratitude, he writes them a letter, which is what we're reading, Philippians chapter 4. It is absolutely bursting with joy, and not only because Paul is being fed again, Paul is overjoyed by this. This church uniquely understands that the most blessed thing any Christian can do is join hands with other believers to make the good news of Jesus known to other people. He is bursting with joy over their partnership in the gospel. They're putting themselves, in other words, their people, their money, 
their energy, their work, they're putting it to helping Paul advance into places where they themselves cannot go. And Paul is just bursting with gratitude. And at the end of the letter, as I'm about to read to you, he gets very expressive. And it seems almost over the top in his gratitude, but along the way, he's going to tell them, listen, I am immensely grateful that you've done this because now I can eat again, but even if I hadn't, I've learned something. I've learned to be content. Let me show you what I mean. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Do you understand the magnitude of what he's saying? The greatest missionary in the history of the world how many, had how many supporting churches? One. I was a missionary once, not a particularly great missionary, and I had about a hundred. Only one church had the good sense to help Paul. Only you, Paul says. Verse 16, even in Thessalonica, another city Paul had preached in, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Listen to the gratitude. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Please understand that when your local church receives an offering, something is happening beyond paying bills. Your participation in the gospel, Paul says, earns fruit to your credit. You share in the eternal reward of whatever good comes from our partnership together in the gospel. We've had three people baptized this morning. Priscilla, some will be baptized in the future. Her child was sick, so she couldn't be baptized this morning. But at least two of the stories that I'm familiar with from the first service, a father and daughter were baptized. They're, they're just simply trophies to the grace of God. And to see a young high school girl crying for joy coming up out of the waters of baptism, I don't even know what that was all, all was about. It's actually not much of my business. But Jesus has done something extraordinary in the Baker family. Something good has happened there, and those of you who have joined hands with this church, you've had a part in that through your prayers, through your giving, through your own ministry efforts. Paul says in verse 17, that is fruit that increases to your credit. Listen to the gratitude, verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied Having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the tenor of the whole letter right at the end. 
But I want to draw your attention again to verse 11. Paul said, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. It's quite a statement. Do you read it with me? Here's Paul's testimony from a prison cell some 26 years after trusting Christ. Read it. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Could you say that with him? I heard you read it. Good job, by the way. Sounds great on the podcast when we read together. I think it was a stadium full of people. You're such enthusiastic readers. Well done. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I can read that in my Bible. I'm not sure I can say it with him. Can you? See, I've got all this social media my neighbors, my friends, my family members, my own belief in my potential or where I should be by now or what we should have achieved, what we should be doing as a family, what I should be doing as a man, a husband, a father, a pastor, you name it. All these different roles, where should I be by now? These setbacks, these unexpected expenses, these kinds of discouragements, the sort of joy I thought I would enjoy by now and still haven't, Whatever that picture is, whether it's generated by me or it's legitimately something that God has for me to do, Paul says through all of that, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then we're in verse 11. Verse 12 says, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. Who enjoys being brought low? And the language here means that some, somebody did something to Paul to humble him. You enjoy being humble? You enjoy being humble? May I suggest to you that if you ever catch yourself being humble, you no longer are? <laughs> ever been proud of your own humility? I hope they appreciate how selfless that was. Then you notice that's ridiculous and you congratulate yourself on your discernment? Did it again. Paul's inviting you to 26 years after trusting Christ into the lab. He's telling you what he's learned. He said, I know how to be brought low. Next, next phrase, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. There's a secret. Paul's not a self-help book huckster. He's not a seminar guy that fills stadiums with empty cliches and slogans. He's a follower of Jesus who has verifiably, visibly, and publicly left everything behind so that he can have Christ. And now it's cost him prison. After many beatings and more trouble than any human being should have to endure, now Paul is coming back from the edge of actual starvation saying, I'm so thankful you helped me. Nobody else did, nobody else cares. You're the only church that partners with me, but listen, I'm not particularly worried about my needs. I want credit in God's view to pile up in your account because I've learned something. I've learned a secret of being content in whatever situation I find myself in. Whether people mistreat me and abuse me, 
or whether I am being prospered and enjoying my life, I have learned a secret of contentment. What is the secret? Verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. The most abused and quoted out of context verse in all the Bible. Because some sweet guy who's filled with muscles, Christian boxer, knocks his opponent senseless and with sweat all over him and the other guy's blood on his gloves, he says, standing over the half-dead body, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And no, good if an athlete gives credit to God. He should. His life, his prowess, his strength is on loan from God. But Paul's talking about something much more profound than athletic success. Paul is saying that he has learned in every and each circumstance, whether it's deserved or good or fair or right, whether it's physically comfortable or physically excruciating, he has learned to look to Jesus to be so conscious of the presence and the strength of Jesus that Jesus gives Paul strength in every circumstance, and because Jesus is strengthening Paul, Paul is content with Jesus himself. What is Paul trying to teach us here? Simply this, contentment comes when you trust that Christ is sufficient in every situation, every situation, but it's learned I've told you a few weeks ago, every time I preach, I feel like God gives me a pop quiz shortly after the sermon. Those of you who are preachers in this crowd may know what I mean. It's almost as if God in His infinite wisdom says, really? Well, that you told them the truth. Let's see if you believe it. You know it in theory. Let's see it in practice, Gardner. And I get a test on contentment. It's learned. What does it look like in daily life to trust Christ in every situation? Because Paul is telling you that that's exactly what's happened here. He says, over all of these years, through all I've been through, through all of the mistreatment, through all of the abandonment, later he'll say at the very end of his life that when he was making a defense for his life, no one stood with him. Everyone abandoned him. But even in all of that, with all that it's cost him, Paul says, I have learned to be content because I have Christ and He is the one who gives me strength. Now, the point of this sermon is to show you from the book of Philippians itself what contentment looks like in real life. In other words, what were the things that Paul had learned that you can learn from Him through the inspired Word of God so that you yourself can be content. Let me ask you, just wouldn't you like to be on a path toward contentment? If contentment couldn't be, could be learned, wouldn't you like to arrive someday? It may not be tomorrow, but you can get started. And here's the first thing I read in Paul's letter. First of all, it looks like this. Contentment in daily life looks first like this. It looks like gratitude to God and to others. The hallmark of this letter is that it is bursting with gratitude. I won't take time to show you, but in the first chapter, Paul says, I'm in prison. And there are guys outside of prison who are adversarial to me, and they're preaching, thinking that their preaching is going to annoy me. And I think that's probably what this looked like. 
Paul must be a fake or a phony or at least not as sanctified as we are because we're out here outside of prison. We're stepping large and mighty for Jesus. He's in prison all the time. wonder what's wrong with his spiritual life. You ever met these kinds of Christians? Ever had a friend like Job's friends? You're, you're hurting and they just assume that you've done some terrible thing and you've deserved it? One of the most extraordinary things that Paul says in Philippians chapter 1 He says, those men are preaching Christ from bad motives. But he says, whether their motives are good or bad, whether Christ is proclaimed in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. Think about that. Because what Christians, pastors particularly, if I'm honest, we love to question other people's motives. We can't quibble with what they're doing, so we just say, well, the motive must be bad. What he's doing is really good, but I think he wants attention. Look, he had somebody take his picture. He's into the glory. That's going on Instagram. Paul says, I don't even care. In fact, I rejoice as long as Jesus is being proclaimed, the motives of the messenger are secondary. Please don't get me wrong. Motives always matter. But Jesus is so powerful and precious. If he is truly believed, Paul says, I'm going to rejoice in that no matter what the motives were with the preacher. The whole letter is bursting with gratitude. Look in Philippians 4.10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. Paul was conscious of Jesus in prison with him, and he is grateful. Look at verse 14. It was kind of you to share my trouble. Verse 18 Listen to this over-the-top word of thanks. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Does that sound like a grateful man to you? Yes. It is conscious gratitude to God and others that begins contentment. See, the mysterious thing about gratitude, it is a symptom and a cause of contentment. Grateful people are content, and content people, contented people are grateful. There is a beautiful, virtuous cycle when you practice gratitude in every circumstance. In fact, Paul commands the Philippians to do just that. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Read this with me. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Anxiety is the illness of our age. Social media doesn't help that either. There's this thing called FOMO. Have you heard about it? Fear of missing out. That's why people are glued. What's happening? What am I missing? Somebody else is having a good time and I'm not part of it. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything in the brutal, rough and tumble world of the first century. Without our blessings, without our safety, without our protection, without our refrigerators, stocked with food, without all the things that we take for granted in 21st century coastal Orange County life. Paul told people in circumstances much more difficult than ours, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in every kind of circumstance, by prayer and supplication, with 
thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Garner translation, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything and tell God what you need as you thank Him. With thanksgiving, gratitude cultivates and creates contentment. I know this is important to Paul because he keeps saying it. He wrote to the Thessalonians, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. There are precious few times in the Bible where you will find these literal words, this is the will of God for you. This is one of those times. What God wants you to do at all times and in every kind of circumstance is to be grateful. And for a lot of people, that just sounds impossible because the world is rough and filled with evil, filled with wickedness, filled with unfairness and suffering. Are you to thank God for every single wicked thing that happens in the world? No. Listen, there are many things that God sees every day in this world that give Him no pleasure. They're not praiseworthy. They break God's heart and call forth God's anger. So you're not grateful for every single thing that happens. Many things that happen in the world are a product of this wretched, sinful world that we live in and the selfish human heart that beats within every single one of us that only Jesus can redeem, heal, forgive, and change. But what God does want you to do in all of that battle is to be thankful in every circumstance. It's a matter of attitude. There's an old joke that illustrates it. The joke doesn't do justice to the Bible, but it proves the point well enough. About 200 years ago, two shoe companies were looking at rough indigenous territory, and they each sent a salesman to scout for new business. They each got to, to these villages, saw the local conditions, and sent back a telegram. The first man said, there is no market here, no one wears shoes. Second man sent a telegram back, said, market unlimited, no one here wears shoes. <laughs> What's the difference? Attitude. Same facts. Attitude. For those of you who are married, do you ever get annoyed with your spouse? I want to be careful here because my spouse is in the room, but I can assure you <laughs> she gets annoyed with me. We get frustrated with each other. But when my mind clears, if I'm thinking gratefully, if I'm thinking vertically about God, do you know how grateful I am to have a wife to be annoyed with? She's a joy. Last week, we sent our eldest off to college to the barren, hot wasteland that is Phoenix <laughs> in an 18-year-old vehicle. And the call I've been dreading for three years came. The truck had broken, the radiator's gone. I know, that's what I said. Oh. <laughs> and then, because I was studying this, I got to thinking. I'm so grateful it's just a radiator. I'm so grateful he's not stranded. I'm so grateful it didn't break in a way that hurt the vehicle more or worse, hurt him or somebody else. 
I'm so grateful that somebody out of the kindness of their heart gave us that truck three years ago. So making this repair is going to bring the total cost of that vehicle to our family over three years to about 900 bucks. Tires a few years ago and a radiator now. 900 bucks pretty cheap for a car for three years, don't you think? And as God in his good care for my kid would have it, he broke down in front of a very kind-hearted mechanic who <laughs> literally stayed open late, had it fixed 12 hours later. It runs better now than it's ever run before. But I had to quickly adjust the attitude rather than say, because is this my natural depressive temperament, why, God, do these plagues come into thy servant's life? <laughs> I serve thee with an open, sincere heart. I send my heir to be educated at a Christian university, and this is the thanks I get. <laughs> you have the friend that sends the email around, just ordinary things happen, and it's a spiritual attack. Under heavy warfare here, what happened? We ran out of toothpaste, man. It's hard. <laughs> Practice gratitude. I'll tell you how specifically in a moment. There's more to it. It goes deeper than that. What I also see in Paul is this. He is continually giving himself to Christ. He's grateful because he is living quite literally in his mind, in his every waking moment, he is living in the presence of Jesus. Verse 10 again, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly. In other words, when Epaphroditus came through into that cell with the money, Paul was grateful to the man, but he was first grateful to the Lord. If I could convey this simple idea, I would count this time together we've sent fruitful and helpful. If I can convey it and you can believe it. The most beautiful thing about the gospel is not a set of facts you believe about Jesus. Those facts are important. They're contained in things like doctrinal statements and even ancient creeds. But the best those doctrinal statements and creeds can do is faithfully tell you the kind of God that loves you and who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. But the beautiful thing about the gospel is you are not subscribing merely to a set of beliefs. You are entrusting your life to a person who has made promises like this, that he will be with you every day until the end of the age that he will be your good shepherd and you will recognize his voice and he knows your name so that when he calls you, you will listen, you will follow after him. That he is the fulfillment of what David wrote a thousand years earlier, the Lord is my shepherd. And yes, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? What's it say next? Because you are with me. I don't have values to cling to. I have a God to cling to. I have a Savior to stand fast for me, to stand in my place as my substitute who has committed himself so much to me that he has placed me in him and I belong to him and he belongs to me. And he is my Savior. And that's why Paul said, I rejoice in Christ. And Paul was day by day, this was part of his learning. He was giving himself continually to Jesus. Philippians chapter 3 tells the story. 
whatever gain I had. Paul's reflecting back on all that it's cost him to follow Jesus. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What kind of gain did Paul have? I've already told you. Esteem, comfort, prestige, a high, high standing in his culture. Paul was admired. If there were magazines on his day, he would have been on the cover. He would have been giving TED Talks in ancient Israel. He would have been desired. He would have been an influencer. Paul would have been trending in his world. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I want you to pay attention to the verbs here. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. What's the verb tense there? There, counted. It's in the past. Paul said, I made a personal commitment that the things that mattered to me in the past would not count anymore. I would turn my back on those things for the sake of Christ. That's in the past. I've already decided Indeed, he says, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. What's the verb tense there? I count. Present right now. So what is the Christian life? Is it, it is an accounting of your life when you meet Jesus that he's worth trusting more than anything or anyone, that you won't cling to your own righteousness, that you won't cling to religion, that you won't cling to your own idea of getting better or making yourself better. You will count all of that. Anything that stands between you and Christ, you'll make a commitment to forsake it for Christ, and then that commitment is renewed day by day. Listen to the rest of his testimony. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them right now as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is giving himself to Christ day by day. Here's a for instance of him doing it. He's saying goodbye to a group of pastors, the elders, the pastors of the church at Ephesus. And here's what he tells them. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. See, preachers have had a bad reputation for 2,000 years. Paul was so conscious of his motives being maligned that he said, unlike everybody else, I'm not going to receive financial support. I'm going to earn my own way whenever possible. You know yourselves that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, here's Paul quoting Jesus, would you read that with me? It is more blessed to give than to receive. You believe that? Years ago, I was watching a church take an offering. They said, the pastor said, we're going to take an offering now. The place burst into cheers and applause. I thought, what kind of weird cult is this? <laughs> What's that guy told his people? And then I thought more about it. 
You know, if I really and truly believed that anything I give to Christ for His sake and for the sake of the gospel stores up an eternal reward, brings credit to my account, if I really believe that it is more blessed to give than to receive, I'd be delighted for the opportunity to give anything I had for the sake of Christ. See, it's a matter of you giving yourself to Christ. If you give yourself to Christ, your time, your money, your talent, that comes easily because He has you. If He has you, you're not tight-fisted with anything that matters to you. What matters to us? Well, money matters a great deal to all of us. It's necessary to go through life. Some people, a very few, have earned so much money that they find their time more precious than their money. They've stored away plenty of money. They don't have much time. So they are very, very tight-fisted with their time. What would Jesus have you to give? Anything and everything that He's placed in your hands, for His sake, you give it freely because you've given yourself to Him. Listen to what He told the church in Corinth in His second letter to them. He said, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. As a pastor, this verse completely knocks me down because the Corinthian church was a hot mess. And they had broken Paul's heart in so many ways, including there were many in the church that thought he was a phony. And Paul had to defend himself strenuously in this letter to prove that his faith was legitimate. And if you read across his two letters, you can feel his disappointment, his sorrow, his anger. He pleads with them. He very nearly threatens them like a father to come back home and get out the belt and straighten them out. They're suing each other. There's gross sexual immorality that would have been eyebrow-raising even in the ancient world. They're showing up drunk to the Lord's Supper. They're divisive. They've each picked their own preacher. They're splitting the church apart because one guy likes Paul and the other guy prefers Peter. And at the end of the letter, after all of this pleading and teaching, he says this, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I will spend myself. I'll burn myself out. I'll leave it all on the field for your souls. Who can do that? Someone who has given himself to Christ. Final third habit that I see in this letter is this. What, it, what contentment looks like in the life of Paul is an awareness of God's satisfying presence. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord. Verse 13, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. He is continually conscious of Christ, and because He's conscious of Christ, He gives Himself to Him. That's why He said, Philippians 4, 12 and 13, I know how to be brought low, and I know who to, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. How do you do it, Paul? I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It's Jesus standing beside me when no one else does. I'm aware that if everyone else forsakes me, he will not. If everyone else forgets me, he cannot. When I was in seminary, and a few of you shared the, the honor, I studied with a man named Mike Wilkins. He's one of the foremost Greek scholars in the world. 
be, you'd be hard-pressed to find anybody who knows more about the Gospel of Matthew than Mike Wilkins. Dr. Wilkins said he was saved in what in Southern California they called the Jesus People Movement. He had come back from Vietnam where he had served in very hard combat. Came back messed up from the things he'd said and done and the things he had done to cope. And then he got saved. And he really consciously started loving Jesus, not as an abstract concept, but as a person. And then somebody told Dr. Wilkins that none of this stuff in the Gospels had been written in English, it had been written in Greek. And if he really wanted the real stuff, he had to learn Greek. And that's why he became a Greek scholar. Out of love. But he said in the early days of his just getting acquainted with Jesus, he was so conscious as a brand new Christian of Jesus being his Savior. He's a hardcore surfer too. He's got the sunburn to prove it even now. He'd get in his Volkswagen, his little Volkswagen van loaded with surfboards and be so conscious of Jesus. This is Dr. Wilkins' testimony. Now an esteemed Greek scholar, you can buy his books. There's several scholarly stuff. He'd reach across and buckle Jesus in in the passenger seat. That's weird. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) But listen, the Lord says in Colossians, He is your life. He said things like this, I'm the vine, you're branches. He's the good shepherd, we are part of His flock. He's with you. If you're consciously aware of that, it will give you contentment. Let's practice. Here's three things from these three things that Paul learned over all these years, however long it took him, nearly three decades apparently. Let me give you three simple things that you can take into your everyday. Here's three habits to cultivate contentment. First of all, be openly and specifically grateful to God and others. When I say be grateful to God and others, I specifically mean this. Tell them that you're grateful. Tell God you're grateful. Tell other people that you're grateful. It will bring joy into their lives. It will bring joy and increase contentment in your own. Too many times to count much more than I'd like to admit as a pastor, I've been a hypocrite because I preach things better than I live them. If you ever taught the Bible, you probably know the feeling. This morning I decided I'd try to counter that, so I decided to sit down, and after having read Philippians 4 about five times this morning, I thought I'm going to consciously be grateful to God before I leave the house. And I tore a piece of paper out of my, note, out of my wife's notebook, and I tore the notebook while doing it. Sorry, honey. And, <laughs> and I just sat down and wrote down the things that this morning I was aware that I should be grateful for. Before I picked up the pen, before I started slowing down in my thinking, I had written down 26 things. Take a minute and practice. You have a bulletin? Go on the back of that sheet or the part you haven't written on and just write down a few things that you're grateful for. I'll give you a minute and I'll count. This is your gratitude to the Lord. Make a list, will you?
Okay, come on back. Daily. That's number one, be openly and specifically grateful to God and to others. Second thing, do this as well. Consciously give away your time and possessions for the sake of Jesus. In other words, every time you get paid, as God gives you increase, as God gives you income, that's what it says in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, set something aside and give it away. Give it back. Bring it to the local church, which is his body, and give it away for the sake of the gospel. Some of you, I don't know who, but since the giving money part, that's easy for me. I got that wired. Are you giving your time as well? The two precious things that we have in our lives is money to buy things and to get things done and time with which to enjoy them and achieve them. If you will consciously set aside at least a few hours every week of your life, in other words, you have a ministry, you have something that you know you're going to show up to love and to serve other people. This will increase your contentment. What generally happens is that Christians live their lives under their own guidance, and as need arises or as they are guilted or recruited into serving and loving other people, then they do something for as long as they can stand it, and then they slowly fade or quit. You want to live gratefully and content before God? See your life, this little vapor of a life as you have, as a precious gift that was given to you by God for His glory and the good of other people. And consciously say, Lord, these hours, with no particular benefit to myself, I am going to serve others. Young Anna Brumbach, who was up here leading singing, she goes away to college this week, it's breaking my heart. Because I love that kid like a daughter, she's been very precious and important to our family. Yesterday, she worked 11 hours. Then she came to church at 7 o'clock and helped in the high school and junior high lock-in overnight. She worked for 11 hours. Frankly, as your pastor, after working 11 hours, I would have gone home and said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to the lock-in. It's not safe for me or anybody else. I've worked 11 hours. <laughs> Best wishes, I'll pray for you before I fall asleep. Why did she do that? Because she loves these students. She was just one of them, and she wants to give back. Third, and I'm done. Look to the Lord Himself to strengthen you as you do all this. You write that check and your hand trembles a little bit, but you want to be grateful, you want to be generous, you want to show your contentment because you're generous, you say, Lord, you've given me these things, they belong to you, here's a portion back for the gospel. Lord, I'm so pressed for time, my kids are driving me so crazy, my job, my marriage are so difficult already, I don't think I have any time to serve anybody else, but I'm giving these two hours this weekend to serve someone else. Stand beside me and strengthen me, and He will, because the key to contentment is the sufficiency of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may You be loved and obeyed. And we give you now this offering and this song, and as you welcome us, Lord, to a whole new week, help us see it as bursting with opportunity to love you and to love others, to share the gospel, to make disciples, to love our families, to work hard and be excellent in our jobs, to represent you there well. And we will give you thanks. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.